Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that I'm always looking for great show ideas and topics and for new guests to be on the show. So if you have a show idea or you'd like to be a guest on the show or even know somebody who would, go to radtalkwithtracy.com, click the podcast link and send me an email or apply to be on the show and I'll be in touch. All right, let's get started. Today, I am talking with my guest, Veronica Kramer. Veronica just turned 31 and is originally from Texas. She spent some time of her childhood in the foster care system and was a teen mom. She works full-time and has been the sole caretaker of her child. Veronica dropped out of high school, but went on to get her bachelor degree in criminal justice. Uh, She's decided that isn't the path for her, and so she's been working on different career goals over the last two years. Her rad child is her biological child. Veronica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today and being willing to share your story. Hi, Tracy. Of course, I'm excited to be here and, and to share this and hopefully it'll help someone else. Awesome. So we hear a lot about adopted kids with reactive attachment disorder. And that's not the case with you. Your child has reactive attachment disorder, but is your biological child. Yes. She, I had my daughter very young. It started out rough. My daughter is actually a product of a sexual assault. So it wasn't planned or anything like that. And I decided that because I went through the foster system, I didn't want my kid to have to go through the foster system. It, it's not her fault, you know, that she's here or what happened. So um, I decided that I was just going to keep her and I was going to raise her. Incredible. That must not have been easy. Um, it's, it's definitely been challenging. It's been rough. Um, and on the grand scale of things, I did miss out on like the first year of her life, kind of. I... Most parents, when they have their baby, they automatically love their child, even before their child is born. Um, And I had to learn to love my daughter. So that first year for a lot of the milestones, I was missing quite a few of those with the interaction and the social cues and stuff like that, because I loved my child, but not in like a child capacity. So it's been really rough, even for that first year from the very beginning. Were you getting help for you during that time? I mean, that's a lot going on being a new mom and going through what you went through. Did you have any support? Um, I have a little bit of support, but there's some uh, adopted dynamics from my adopted family that come into play there. So there was some support, Um, but looking back, it was not nearly the level of support that I needed. And I refused at that point. I was like, I'm fine. I don't need to go to therapy. I don't need to deal with it. I don't need any of that. I need to focus on my kids. So there was, there wasn't the level of support there that I've needed really for, 
up until probably about a year ago, there really wasn't any level of support as far as um, my child and my own needs. Wow, that's a so, long time. So you basically did everything alone. So let's backtrack a little bit because you said you were in foster care. Tell me a little bit about your story before we get into your, I guess, the second phase of your story about you being in foster care <laughs> sure. and you growing up. It's kind of um, an in and out sort of thing. So I do know who my biological mother is. Um, okay. I have met her a few times. However, she, when I was three, she walked out. It's my earliest memory of her. Um, walking out the door and not coming back. It's the very first memory I have of her. That first three years we were together and I had a little sister. Um, she's a year and a half younger than me. And when my biological mother left, she left us with my little sister's biological dad. Um, he's not my biological dad, but he was very physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually, like any kind of abusive. He was a drug addict and he had an alcohol problem. Um, it just, it was a huge mess. And for <clears throat> years, um, and when I say years, I was actually removed from the home when I was 10. So we're wow. talking about seven years where I remember going to school and telling the system, you know, it started out as I'm just, Yes, I'm covered in bruises, but I'm just a clumsy elf. Like I tried to hide it. I was being told from like my grandparents' side that the abuse wasn't happening. Um, I was being threatened at home. It was more of a like, I've got to protect my sister. I don't want my sister to go through this. There were, of course, drug dealers and drug houses involved. And I was being threatened, you know, you can't say anything about this. No one's going to believe you anyways. Pick a line that you've heard. And, and that's what was told to me. And, and as a kid, I was just terrified constantly. Oh, I can't imagine. When I was eight, my dad, for lack of better wording, um, he'd pretty much left my little sister alone. And right around that time, he decided he was going to, that I was too old and he was going to stop selling me for drugs and start selling my sister. And that was the point where I'd had enough. And I selling remember, you. what do you mean by selling you? He used to put me in sexual situations with adults so that he could get drugs in exchange. He didn't have any money. So at right around 10 years, uh, right around eight years old, I guess he decided I was too old and he decided to try and start selling my little sister. And that was the point where I was like, I'm done because he, I took the brunt of it for my sister. So like, I didn't want her, I, I didn't know why, but I knew that I didn't want what was happening to me to happen to her. You know, I didn't want her to get hit. I didn't want her to get screamed at. I, you know, I made, I always made sure that the few times we had food, she ate first. Like I was, it was kind of like a motherly role from a very early age. And the first time that he laid hands on my sister, I was like, I'm done. And I remember I went to school and I told him, well, this is what's going on. And they were like, well, last week you told us these bruises were from this. What is it? You know, and, and kind of not being believed throughout the years. And I mean, it got to the point where I took his crack pipe and I put it in my backpack and I took it to school because wow. I was like, you guys, this is actually happening. I have 
proof of this. And I remember the DFS investigator coming in and hearing my side of the story and being really sympathetic. And then when they went to talk to my dad, um, he was like, I don't know where that came from. She must have picked it up on the way to school. Never mind that I took the bus to school, but was like, you know, she must have picked it up on the way to school. It's not mine. I've never seen it. And DFS was like, oh, it's unsubstantiated and closed the case. Wow. And, and I went home that night and the beating that ensued from that was just like, I, I almost died that night. And I can say that with all honesty, I still have the scars. Like I, I almost died that night because I reported it and, and DFS had come into the home and I and eventually, yeah, like no one was there to help me. It, it was me. I was by myself. And I eventually remember going, hey, so he lets us visit our grandparents sometimes, but he really doesn't like us around our grandparents. And grandma and grandpa always ask probing questions. And Veronica, are these your grandparents from your mom's side or your dad's side? Dad's side. Okay. Okay. So they're asking probing questions and trying to figure out something yeah like they had an idea that something was going on but we'd been denying it for a really long time um right so I remember going to them there was one day where and it stands out in my mind as like the beginning of the transition into all of this we had pulled up in front of the house and he was like okay you can go up into the driveway and get the things that they got you for Easter but you can't go in the house and I remember I walked up the driveway and my grandma grabbed me and pulled me in the house and was like, I need to know what's happening. Something's going on that you're not, no one's telling me. And I told her, and I didn't know at the time, but she'd been keeping a log over the years of wow. like stuff that she thought was suspicious. And that day the police came out, grandma wouldn't let me leave the house. She locked the door. She locked me in the house. Where was your sister at this time? She was in the car. Okay. She, she was in the car with, with dad and she wouldn't let us, like, she wouldn't let me leave the house. So of course the police got called and the police came out. And I remember the police physically taking my sister from the car, kicking and screaming because my sister, that's the only life she knew. Like she didn't know anything else. And they took her from the car and they handed her to my grandma through the door and they arrested Gary and they towed the car. And that was the first time that I remember ever really feeling protected and safe. So even though that was big and scary police and you getting pulled, your sister getting pulled from the car, that was still a good feeling for you because you knew you were being protected at yeah. that time. At that yeah. time, I knew like maybe, maybe this is finally over. You know, maybe, maybe we're, we're finally there. And we went through the court system. Um, I was officially adopted. Me and my sister were officially adopted by our grandparents in January of 2000. Cause it was right after my 10th birthday, we were officially adopted and my grandparents while they knew there was like abuse and stuff going on, they were still really kind of in denial about all of the stuff that happened. They just didn't want to know. 
And my grandparents weren't really, they didn't really believe in mental health. They're kind of old school. You just got up and you pushed John. That wasn't something that you dealt with. You know, you didn't go to therapy. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. So even though the court ordered me specifically to go to therapy and my grandparents would make me go because it was court ordered. I was so used to that environment where you can't say anything. You just push through. You're going to be fine that I learned to live in this constant state of survival. So I wasn't even open to the therapist at that point. And so it was a really rough four years. And I say four years because when I was 14, things got really bad. I got into drugs. I got into alcohol. I was skipping school. I was staying the night at random houses. I was just on a very, very, very bad path. And my little sister's over there and she's going to school and she's just She's living what seems like a normal life and I'm just out here being crazy. And I had stayed the night with one of my friends because her mom was an alcoholic and we'd come home from school and her mom had actually passed out and was like covered in blood. And she was a single parent and she was freaking, my friend was freaking out. And I was like, okay, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to help you. Like I I dealt with this as a kid. Like I'm used to cleaning up drunk people. Like this is normal for me. So I'd stayed with her for a few nights just to help her with her mom and get things cleaned up and get everything taken care of. And when I went to go back home, and this was before cell phones, we saw those like old Samsung bricks and it wasn't a common thing. (laughs) Sure. About a week later, I was still going to school at that point. Like we would take her mom's car. The justification was we're going to keep her from driving drunk and getting more alcohol. So 14 years old, we were stealing her car and driving it to school, Um, but we were still going to school. So in our minds, it was fine. Like we're still going to school. This is fine. (laughs) And I, about five days later, after we'd taken care of her mom and she was sober and we'd gotten her cleaned up and things seemed normal, I went back to my house. It didn't even strike me that maybe I should have called my grandparents. They had no idea where I was for five days, no idea what I was doing, anything. Wow, and I didn't days. even think about, I'm not used to having people that worry about what I'm doing or where I'm going. Like that, that was foreign to me. I've been very independent since I was a kid. So I showed back up at home and my grandma flipped out. She was just, I call it crazy now, but having a rad child that runs away. <laughs> I look at it and I'm like, okay, I understand now why she was so freaked out that I was gone for that period of time with no communication. At the time, I just didn't get it. Well, we ended up fighting and arguing and grandma packed a whole bunch of big black trash bags with all my stuff and threw them out onto the lawn and was like, you want to be an adult? You can go live like an adult, figure it out. And locked me out of the house. And I was 14 years old. So I couch hopped. Of course, I didn't want DFS to know because I knew what was going to happen. And I couch hopped for a few months. And at some point there was like a registration event or something like that where my grandparents had to be present. I, it, it had something to do with either the school or the hospital. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I needed a guardian. And my grandparent, my grandparents didn't show up. And so DFS was called. And it started this whole ball rolling. So I ended up going in and out of group homes. Um, There was a couple foster homes, which I'm pretty sure if I went back now, 
would actually be great foster homes. But me as a kid was like, this isn't gonna, it, it's really hard for anyone to go from having almost complete freedom to a structured environment where, you know, I'm 14, you're gonna do the dishes, you're gonna do chores, you're gonna go to school and you're told to, no, I'm not. Why, I haven't done it before. Why am I gonna do it now? So they were probably really great people. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but I just had that mindset. So I was in a total of three different foster homes and I was in and out of about four or five different group homes at one point it got to the point where I was in and out of like runaway shelters because there was no other placement for me. So I was literally living in a runaway shelter. And at 15, my grandfather passed away and he was kind of, he was the one, I was the favorite to him. Like he's the one who wanted me around. He's the one who interacted with me. He's the one who kind of let me do what I wanted. So we got along very well. We used to go on workouts and all kinds of stuff together. So when I was 15, he passed away and it was very sudden. Um, and it was very unexpected. And right around that time, grandma threw up her hands and went, I don't want her anymore. So I ran away from the, from the group home I was in to go to my grandfather's funeral. And after the funeral, the police showed up because I ran away and they knew where I was going to go. Police showed up um, and I was placed in another group home. And I, on accident, met my, I call her my mother, my mom. Um, I met her on accident when I was, I was almost 16. This is your no. biological mom? Okay. You just call her your mom. No, okay. it's a. Yeah. Um, I met her completely on accident at a park and we actually connected over a book that we were reading. And it turns out that she was a like certified foster parent and she could foster. Um, and she ended up basically asking the system if she could take me looking back right now, I'm like feeling joy over it. So I don't have contact with her anymore. I haven't had contact with her in over four years and it was kind of spotty for a while. And honestly, it's for the best because she's, that she has her own set of problems um, that she never dealt with. And, and it kind of came into play when I started going to therapy and trying to get better. I was like, you're, that's not right. Like something's huh. wrong, but I ended up moving in with her and it was more of a free environment. I mean, for my 16th birthday party, she threw me a kegger and invited all my friends. Like, I was totally happy because I got to do what I wanted. And I was in a home where I wasn't forced to do things that I didn't want to do. And I felt safe. And then um, in January of 2000, 2006, um, I just turned 16 years old. It was exactly a year from when my grandfather had passed. It was the exact same day I was working. And my boss at the time offered me a ride home because it was the middle of the night. I'd stayed for overtime. We'd close together. He offered me a ride home. And I was like, yeah, okay. I've worked with you for a few months. I'm cool with that. And it wasn't just a ride home. And that's what happened with the sexual assault on the ride home. And I actually didn't know I was pregnant for four months. I found out I was pregnant with my daughter four months along. I didn't gain any weight. I was really underweight to begin with. 
I was really unhealthy. Um, so I didn't have periods. I've actually never had periods. And that's a result of like the trauma from when I was little, the physical trauma had no idea about it at all. And it turned out, um, my mom was like, Hey, the dog's following you around. The last time the dog did that, someone was pregnant here, take a test. And then it kind of came out what happened because Ah. I didn't tell anyone. So at that point it kind of came out what happened. Um, I had a friend who'd promised not to say anything. She had been assaulted by the same person. We knew who it was. We, we, we knew him. Um, she, he'd attempted to assault her and she'd called me. She was one of my friends. She was like, I'm freaking out. This is what's going on. And in an attempt to kind of make her feel that she, she wasn't alone, because I remember that feeling and I didn't want her to feel that. I told her what happened to me and I made her promise not to tell my mom and all this stuff. And as soon as we hung up, she called my mom which was the right thing to do. However, yeah, I got very mad at her and I don't have any contact with her at all. I've got no way to get a hold of her at all. Um, even to tell her that like, I'm sorry, I got mad at you, <laughs> you know? Right. So I was no longer able to be a ward of the state because I was pregnant. Oh, okay. So yeah. um, I lived in this foster home. Um, I lived with her until I was 18. Um, and I joined the military because I just wanted out of the house. I had a two-year-old at the time. Well, one, she was one in a little bit. Um, cause she was born. My daughter was born October of 2006. Okay. So you were still living with your foster mom or your mom at that time. So, and when you had your daughter and you were there a year or two and then joined the military. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm just soaking all of this in because I'm so uh, just amazed at your strength. And I can't even begin to imagine even a little piece of everything that you went through. And so I just want to acknowledge that, how incredibly strong you are. Thank you. I don't, I don't feel that it's like, to me, it's not strength. Like, it's what I had to do to survive. It's my life. Like it, it was normal to me. That's right. So to me, it's not really strength necessarily. It's, I was just living and I, I still at that point didn't know that people don't go through that. Like that, that is not a normal childhood. And right. I still, to this day, am shocked sometimes when people are like, Oh, I had a normal childhood. Like my partner right now, um, my fiance, she had some issues growing up and, and there's a lot involved, but for the most part, like she had two parents, she had a stable home. She had, she had all this stuff. And, and sometimes I stop and I am blown away when she's like, Hey, we're going to go to my parents' house. And I'm like, you're, why? your parents as in plural and houses and they actually live somewhere. Why would you go back there? And then I have to kind of remind myself that while her childhood had its own set of traumas and stuff that goes, that, that is being addressed and that she's working through and stuff like that, while there was all of that stuff happening, it's still the general picture of a normal family. And I'm like, that happens. 
that's it's just strange to me still that that right. happens right. you know so I I there's so many people that are like oh there's that strength there and there's you know you're so strong and you did all this and I'm like I was just living like I don't mean to like demean it or like push it down but yeah but for you, yeah, you were surviving. I was just doing That's what I needed to do. <laughs> to get through every day. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. And so you were saying in the last year, you've gotten a little bit of help for you or how how is that going? Absolutely. I mean, this is a lot to process an entire lifetime of trauma, abuse, and then not really having the support or being open to therapy, like you were saying. So what's happening now? Are you able to get that support that you've needed or are you ready for it? I am working on it. I can't say that I'm ready. Um, however, I did about three years ago, I did find a trauma therapist that I felt comfortable with that does PTSD work because I have severe PTSD um, that does PTSD work and works with like EMDR. Right. And I started seeing her about three years ago. And I've in the last like six months, I've stopped seeing her because I've realized that while I am trying to be ready, she wasn't, I'm that kind of person. I need someone to kind of push me. Like, like I need a therapist to be a little bit more aggressive. Talk therapy isn't going to work for me because I will find some way to distract you. And I know that and to push you off topic. And so I need someone a little bit more aggressive than the therapist I had at the time. So we just, I stopped going to see her and I'm actively looking for a new therapist because I want to keep going. I want to keep getting better. And when I started therapy, I didn't have really any support at all. Um, I met my fiance at the beginning of January last year. So we've been together for a little bit over a year now. And my fiance, she kind of forces me to do that stuff and to take care of myself. And, and really she has a way of being upfront about stuff, but not being abrasive. So I've in the last year, I found that support and I've found she's so encouraging and she's so helpful, even with my daughter. I have a few questions for you that I'm thinking of as we're talking. Do you think you know, there's, there's trauma and there's reactive attachment disorder. And we're going to talk about your daughter in a minute, but going back to you, do you think you growing up had reactive attachment disorder, or do you think your behaviors and your difficulty was really the complex trauma, all of the, um, horrible things that you experienced? Um, I don't think that I had reactive attachment disorder or that I have reactive attachment disorder, just because there, there was never anything for me to get attached to um, in any way. She, like I knew from an early age that my needs weren't going to be met. I, I knew that it wasn't, um, I was actually born in a prison. I was born in the Maricopa County State Women's Facility or Women's Correctional Facility. And I lived the first almost year of my life with my grandparents. And I think from a really early age, especially like three years old, I knew my needs weren't going to be met. I knew that I wasn't going to get these things. And if, if I was going to get them, I had to find them. If I'm hungry, 
I know that I have to go to the store and I have to steal a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter because no one else is going to do it. No one's going to pay for it and no one's going to get it for me. I have to do this. I see. And so when you were living with your grandparents by that time, I know you were a lot older. Uh, was it 14 to kind of 16 or 18? Uh, 10 to 14. 10 to 14. Sorry. Did you, were you able to form an attachment? Like it sounded like you were attached to your grandpa. Did, and what about attachments to friends, your grandpa, your grandparents? I mean, they, those sound like more supportive people that did care about you, or you did have that friend that you confided in. How did your relationships look? My relationships were either surface attachments where I played this role of this friend that's there and is going to care and is going to be there. But I could honestly, and I did it many times, whenever there was something I didn't agree with or something I didn't like, I just dropped you and walked away. In fact, I have some friends like on my Facebook and stuff from those years, from like middle school and high school. And we still don't talk that much because we went, I put them through their own round of crap. So there was some surface ones. And then there was some really deep, almost obsessive attachments for me too. I grew up in, even, even with all of this stuff happening and going through this, it was still an almost evangelical household um, that I grew up in. So I grew up going to church and hearing all these preachings and, and, and all of this stuff, and then going home and seeing the exact opposite. And I still had a little bit of my faith in the church left at that point. And I was like, okay, I, the right thing to do is to find a male companion, to like spend all of your time with this male companion to just, and eventually you're going to get married and you're going to have kids and you're going to have a house. And I had this perfect idea of what like life was going to be like if I formed that like super strong attachment. It was, and it was an attachment. It lasted four years and it was on and off for four years. And it was just this like heat intensive, like I had to be with him all the time. Like I, I had to be around him all the time. I had to show him, you know, I had to do all of these like wifely duties so that he would marry me. And I had to, like, there was just such a strong, strong, huge attachment there. And when I got pregnant, he was like, okay, well, this is my kid. Like, I'm, I'm going to take on the role of taking care of this kid. And um, that was about the time that I was like, uh, but I don't like men just, I, I just don't like men. So I tried to kind of push that attachment away and he kept pushing back. So there was a really super unhealthy attachment there between us. So my attachments ranged from just kind of superficial to like deeply burning, intense craziness. And that's something that I've had to work on throughout the years too, because I've had to learn to be okay by myself. So, but I don't think it was, I don't think I've had I think there might have been some, uh, there might be some attachment issues, but I don't think it's reactive attachment disorder. I think I just have some severe trauma that I personally know I still haven't dealt with. Um, right. right. And, and I yeah. think it's the fallout from, from the trauma and me not necessarily dealing with it, you know? Right. And now tell me a little bit about your, your daughter and that situation. So you had your daughter 
Um, you were with your grandparents at the time, or were you with this partner that you were with? I was living with, and her name is Tracy as well. So, so instead of saying my mom, I might slip up and say Tracy. I was living with my mom at the time. Right. I was still seeing my old partner. And that's when it kind of started to really get rocky between us. I was 16. I was coming more into the like, okay, maybe I'm not straight. Maybe I'm, you know, I started questioning things a little bit more. I had a little bit more of that freedom to do that. Um, And I was living with my mom at the time. Um, And she was semi-supportive, but kind of like I told you, she's not supportive in the way that like, you know, a parent needs to be supportive she's an enabler so she kind of I just didn't have to do anything responsible around her and when I had my daughter I had my daughter at 16 years old by myself in a hospital room without anyone there to help me um I was in labor for 23 and a half hours I didn't have I refused any sort of medication I I still do that because I'm so, I know addiction runs in families and I'm so like, oh, I don't want to be addicted. Like I don't want to be that parent. So I was in labor for 23 and a half hours. I had a beautiful seven pound, 11 ounce baby that everyone told me, including the doctor was going to be a boy (laughs) (laughs) and turned out to be a girl. And I ended up having a little girl. And I just, I remember there was happiness involved with my kid when I had my kid, but there wasn't like that attachment. There was also the sort of scared aspect. And, and I know this has played a lot into my kid's reactive attachment. The, her biological father, my kid's biological father had not been prosecuted or arrested yet. There was the fear that he was going to come take this one thing that was mine that belonged to me that was always going to be there for me he was going to come take her and she was not going to be in a safe place my partner at the time is not my daughter's biological father yeah okay okay gotcha so there was also this very like firm belief and at the time I thought it was kind of paranoid but there was this very firm belief in me that has been substantiated since that my kid was in danger and I was going to do anything I could to protect this tiny little helpless ball of human. So she went to work with me. She went to school with me. When I took a shower, she got put in her bouncy seat and locked in the bathroom with me. She slept in my locked room with me. That child for the first year, even though I had to like learn to love her was attached to me by the no one else was allowed to feed her people could hold her but only while I was present like it was just it was super possessive and I I did all the steps that I was supposed to as a parent you know come cuddle with me you know and she'd sleep on my chest and I'd hold her and I'd feed her and I tried to breastfeed her and I tried to do all this stuff with her So there was that attachment there. All of her needs were met for the first year of her life. And then I, when I turned 18, I joined the military. I had to go to basic training and and my AIT training and do all of this stuff. And I was going to be gone for six months. And it was the first time in, I left in April of 
2018. So my kid's two years old at this point or 20, uh, 2008, I'm sorry. Um, I left in April, 2008 for my basic training. My kid's two years old. This kid has never spent one single day, not more than five minutes during that two years away from me. And I left one morning and didn't come back for six months. Right. And where did your, where did your daughter stay? Who did she stay with? She stayed with my mom. I, I okay. felt that that was a good place for her. It was her, her Nana, her grandmother. She could right. take care of her. I actually, during AIT, got a phone call from DFS that my kid had gotten locked out of the house at two years old in the middle of the winter, had gotten locked out of the house and was on the balcony screaming and they were investigating it. And it turns out that my mom had just like passed out on the couch. And my kid went out to like explore the balcony and had closed the door and didn't know how to open the door back up. But that still causes trauma there, especially when you're used to all of your needs being met right when they are met, you know? So there was all of that going on. And when I got home from that six month stay, I remember walking in the door and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to see my kid. I'm going to see my kid. I'm going to see my kid. I was so happy. And my kid came running out the door and she screamed and ran back into the room. And I was like, what is going on? She didn't, I, I still don't know how she kind of like associated me at that point but it was not as her mom anymore. There there was definitely Mm. a detachment there. So I stayed around for the next few years. And of course she went back to being with me constantly. And it took about a month um, for her to come back around and be like, oh, this is my mom. I'm going to cuddle with you. I'm going to sleep with you. I'm going to ask you for things. It took about a month and we got back to that point. And then I just, my kid was the perfect child. And, And this is kind of what gets me about like reactive attachment disorder. At four, my kid would get up and help me with the dishes. She would help me cook. She'd help me do laundry. I, I really didn't have to give like any parenting commands at all. I didn't have to like, my kid was perfect. I, and I was like, wow, this is actually so easy. Cause even as a baby, you know, my kid never cried. My kid never fussed. There was, no, there was once where for like two days, she refused to eat. And I broke down because I was like, my kid's not eating. Like this isn't okay. But other than that, we didn't really have, I didn't have any, any, any problems at all. All of our milestones were met, all of, I mean, everything. And then right around six years old is when the issue started. And it was almost like day and night, day and night. One day she went to school and she was perfect at school and she was learning and she did all of her work and she played nicely with others and she came home and she took a bath and, and we did a little bit of our homework and we were sitting, um, I was sitting on the couch watching a movie and I remember her, she was like, mommy, can I just lay with you? I can't really sleep. And I was like, okay, yeah, fine. So she laid like on my lap on the couch and she fell asleep on my lap and I wasn't thinking anything about it. And we're almost at the end of the movie and she sits like straight upright on the couch, like from dead asleep to straight upright. And I was like, kiddo, what are you doing? Where are you going? And she's like, I got to go to the bathroom. And it was kind of like monotone, like almost a sleepwalking. Like I got to go to the bathroom. And I was like, 
this is weird. And I was like, okay. So, and instead of her going to the bathroom, she went to the front door and she unlocked the front door and she went out and it's like two o'clock in the morning. And she went out into the yard and started talking, like staring Mm. out to the yard talking. And I was just like, what is going on? I was like, Sophie, who are you talking to? Like, who, what are you doing? What's going on? And I'm like freaking out. And she's just like pointing in the yard. She's like the man. And I was like, what man? Like I turned all of the lights on a half flashlight. There's no one in the yard. And she's like the man, what man? And she's like the man in our yard. And I was like, okay, we need to go back inside. Like right now, like danger alarm is going off. Something's not right. right. Yeah. We need to go back in. And I got her back in the house. And um, she laid down on the couch and she put her head down on my lap and she fell back asleep. And I was like, okay, sleepwalking maybe? Like, this is kind of weird. Yeah, what just happened here? Yeah, and then she got up maybe 30 minutes later and I was like, oh, we're gonna do this again. And she actually went to the bathroom, came back, laid down with no problems. And when I asked her about it the next morning, no memory of it. Like she doesn't remember any of it. I mean, to this day, you can ask her and she doesn't remember any of that happening. Well, the next day at school, the next day at school, it ended up being like, I I went to wake her up and she was throwing a fit over waking up and she didn't want to get dressed. And it was a fight to get her dressed. And we were late for the bus. And I remember running down the street to the bus stop, brushing her hair as we were running completely not normal like this child Mm -hmm. was ready to go like 10 minutes before the bus got there every day she didn't eat breakfast I mean her shoes were on the wrong feet it was like someone had switched my child in the middle of the night it just and I was like okay we had a bad morning it's over with and then I got a call from the school an hour later hey you need to come pick your kid up what happened Oh, she was at, she was outside at PE playing and another little kid had a ball that they were playing with like a dodgeball. And instead of going, Hey, can I play with you with a dodgeball? My kid and the chaperones actually saw this happen. My kid literally walked up to the other little boy, didn't say anything to him, bit him so hard. He was bleeding, took the ball and walked off. And I was like, what is wrong with right. my kid? Like, what is what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. I picked her up and I tried to talk to her and she just denied that it happened, period. She was like, that didn't happen. I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. That didn't happen. Even though we'd just gone through all of that with the school and we got home and she refused to do schoolwork and she stripped all of her clothes off and refused to put them on she refused to eat dinner that night she refused to take a bath she refused to go to bed it was just it was like a night and day switch and from there and then I'm thinking to myself like okay it's just a normal like okay she's a kid she had a fit it happened she had a bad day bad days happen it turned into a bad eight years Where from that day on, it just hasn't stopped. And it's just progressively gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I dealt with this for about three months before I took her, we were living in Albuquerque at the time. Um, And I took her to a children's center there in Albuquerque. Right. 
And I was like, hey, this is going on, something's wrong. And they diagnosed her right off the bat at six years old, straight up, she has reactive attachment disorder. Wow. She spent nine months in RTC there with them. And they were like, she has reactive attachment disorder. This is back, I mean, we're talking eight years ago. This was not like, people weren't like, oh yeah, reactive attachment disorder. Like, I know what that was. Like I saw reactive attachment disorder and I was like, oh, what? How lucky that you found somebody right away that boom, caught it, like knew exactly what it was right then and there. Cause that doesn't happen very often. (laughs) They put her on some medication and they sent her home and I was like, okay, we're good. And for about three, four months after she was discharged, we were great. I had my kid back. Like I, and I say back, I've always had my kid, but I had more of that stability, more of that. And it went back to, I don't have to like, I I don't have to give parenting commands. My kid is up in the morning before school, wakes up to the alarm, helps with dishes, does chores without fighting, like does her own laundry, like was super independent, was doing all this stuff. Like that's how I raised my kid to be. It's like that in for about three, four months, we were fine. And then it was like someone flipped the switch again. We just woke up one morning and like everything fell apart. Originally, when I went to the children's center, um, they who looked at it was just for like therapy. I was like, maybe this kid needs a therapist. And we met with like the intake counselor and they were like, no, she needs residential. Like, wow, she has reactive attachment disorder. She needs residential. So I walked in that day thinking, Hey, I'm going to walk out with my kid and, and a therapy appointment in a few weeks. And I walked out without my kid that day, hmm. um, which I'm sure was very hard, especially for her having reactive attachment disorder. I'm sure that was very hard for her because at that point, it looks like for a second time in her life, mommy's just picked up and left. Hmm. So I'm sure that that maybe could have been handled a little bit differently, but we still didn't really know what reactive attachment. I had no idea. They were like, you're going to go through some parenting classes and do some stuff. And I was like, okay. And they sent me through like neurotypical (laughs) parenting classes and you learn with chore charts and stickers and rewards and, and, and all of this. Nothing that works for rad kids. (laughs) Right. All of this like neurotypical parenting. And I felt armed. I was like, yeah, we're going to do this. This is going to work. This is going to be great. I didn't have a great parenting example, but now I've got all these parenting certificates. Like I know what I'm doing now. Right. Right. About four months after she got out of that nine month RTC stay, everything just crumbled again. Right. Um, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that's Oh my God. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it just, it was, it was kind of a stark reality for me when that happened again, because she ended up in an acute stay. And that was the first time that I'd gotten physically injured during all of this. Um, I had tried to stop her from hurting herself. And in the meantime, I had gotten hurt. Um, she'd actually busted my lip open because I had, I was in the military. I was law enforcement in the military and we're trained in like holds and stuff. And I'd put her in a safety hold and I didn't even think that, Hey, my kid is going to whip her head backwards and shove my teeth through my bottom lip. Ouch. I didn't even think about that. Like, um, so that's the first time I got injured and I'm standing in this intake area and we're in Missouri at this point, because after she got out of RTC, we moved to Missouri. 
Okay. And I'm standing inside of this center and she's fighting and she's fighting. She's like eight years old at this point. And she's fighting and she's fighting and she's fighting. And I had to drag her in by myself while she was fighting her blood pouring from my face. Like, and I had to, I had to drive with her like that because emergency services, like I called 911 and they were like, she's eight. Like, what do you expect us to do? If you can't control your eight-year-old, you're insane. Like, yeah. So I ended up having to drive her myself and, and drag her into, it's the middle of the night again, drag her into this center and I get her in there and like these five big grown men come in scrubs, come running down the stairs and they grab like all limbs of my child. And they're like holding on to my child and they pick her up, take her upstairs to medicate her. And she's screaming and, and thrashing around. And it goes from like, it, it, her mood almost instantly changes. So she goes from like, fight with me to mommy, save me. And it turned into mommy, they're taking me, they're touching me, they're hurting me. Like, help me. Why won't you help me, mom? Like, and it turned into that and there was nothing I could do. So there's this eight-year-old thrashing around with, with these five grown men trying to calm her down. The secretary is going crazy because she's never seen a child dragged into the center like that before. I've got blood everywhere. I, at this point, don't even know where it's coming from. Like, I don't know if it's mine or my kids. Like, I have no idea. I'm trying to give intake, like all of this information, my kids screaming. And I remember I, I, my brain like came together and, and worked it all out and I got her intake. Then I got, I figured out where the blood was coming from and I got everything taken care of and I got out, I signed her in and, and, um, they wouldn't let me see her before I left because she was sedated and it's a closed unit. And I was like, okay, fine. And I walked up to my car and I sat in my car and I went to turn my car on. And I missed the keyhole with my keys. And it was just like the endless flood of emotions and tears that just, and I wanted, I wanted in that moment to run back up there and save my kid, you know? And, and I, that was the first time I actually felt like I failed as a parent. And she was in that acute stay for a week and it just, it just kind of kept that's that's just how life has gone since that's then. just how it's been yeah in and out she's currently in her fifth rtc state five we're at five rtc states she's 14 years old and and we she does good in rtc and she gets discharged we do visits and she comes home and we're good for like a few months and then mm-hmm. it just snaps right back to where we were before and then she goes back to the RTC, the residential treatment center. Yeah, she goes back through acute and back through RTC. And uh, DFS is constantly in and out of my, out of the house and in and out of the lives. Mm-hmm. I've got, we've got court dates that she's got to go to that 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 my kid has to go to, and family treatment team meetings, and group therapy, and individual therapy, and family therapy, yeah. and and all of this stuff. And your whole life is therapy and RTCs and child services. And in the meantime, I'm like, I need to go to therapy for me. But when it comes time to schedule an appointment, I'm just, I'm burnt out. I'm out of spoons. I don't have like, I'm like, nope, I don't have the energy to call this person and tell them that I need help today because 
I'm going to lose it if I call right. and I have to tell this person that I need help. Like, I, yeah, you've got I, nothing left. I, I got nothing. Like, I just, I just yeah. want to lay here and sleep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, so have, uh, it's not sounding to me, but I don't want to assume, but it's not sounding like any of these RTCs are really informed about reactive attachment disorder. Are you getting any therapy or is your daughter getting any therapy? What's happening around the rad piece? So rad actually kind of fell to the wayside um, in the middle of all of this, because I went from, we went from a center in an area that's semi-familiar with rad to an area where they'd never really heard of Brad before. So when, you know, when she got admitted the first time here in Missouri and I was like, she has Brad, they were like, oh, well, that's not that big a deal. Obviously something else is going on. So it all just kind of got thrown off and pushed off to the side. And, and eventually that diagnosis got kind of forgotten about because it mm, got okay. downplayed. And because I didn't know much about it, because it got downplayed by the therapist and everyone else, I kind of downplayed it too. So we ended up with um, emotional disturbance, oppositional defiant, anxiety, high-functioning autistic, um, severely depressive. At one point, one of her uh, psychiatrists had diagnosed her with early onset paranoid schizophrenia with auditory and visual hallucinations. We've got DMDD that's mixed in there, various learning disabilities, like it just, and then the latest one that's popped up um, is severe personality disorder. Gotcha. It's just kind of a generalized like umbrella term. And she was diagnosed with that about six months ago. So, and I'm, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, guys, after I took the time and I learned more about reactive attachment disorder, I was like, okay, we need to go back to this first diagnosis. Like this was right. Now that we've run like the gambit of medications, we've run the gambit of services. We've jumped through literal hoops of fire um, to, to get all of this. And I say that because my kid has actually set my house on fire before. I've literally jumped through fire for this child. Wow. Through all of this no one has, like, we've never stopped and gone back and looked at the reactive attachment disorder part of it. And it's gotten to the point where I told my DFS worker and I told the court a few months ago, I was like, guys, stop. Like she's been on blah, 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 medication 5 billion times. And it hasn't worked. At what point do we stop? And we go, Hey, all of these medications and all of these diagnoses and all the treatments for them aren't working. At what point do we stop and go, Hey, if it's not working, that's not it. Right. If ADHD medication makes her worse, she doesn't have ADHD. Like, because that's not how, that's not how medications work, especially when you've run the gambit of ADHD medication. If you're using anxiety medication as a sedative instead of for anxiety, then obviously something is going on where that like those dots don't connect, right? Something's not right in that kind of process there. Like if you're giving right. her, you know, if she's on Geodon and, and it's not helping with pretty much anything. In fact, it's causing long QT syndrome because she's on such a high dose of it. 
then we have the wrong diagnosis and the wrong medication. And I started really kind of in the last like two years, really looking into her diagnoses and like digging deeper into the medications. And I'm like, then I stopped and I was like, they were right in New Mexico. They were right from the very beginning and we pushed it off and we ignored it. And we acted like it didn't exist. And honestly, we put this child through more trauma and she's put us through more trauma, trying to figure out something that we'd already figured out. And when, when I brought it up to Stephanie and I, or Stephanie, my DFS worker, when I brought it up to my DFS worker and, and I straight up told the court, I was like, you guys need to listen to these episodes. Like you need to listen to Tracy. You need uh. to listen to these <laughs> stories. Like you need to go and actually research reactive attachment disorder and, and hear about this and what it does. And, and I was like, this fits my kid perfectly. And there is a previous reactive attachment disorder, um, diagnosis. diagnosis guys, this is what's going on. I need you to pay attention. I need you to listen to me. And since I've been doing that in the last month, they've kind of changed the way they're doing therapy with my kid. And they've kind of like looked at a little bit more her current therapist or actually our current family therapist had never heard of RAF. He had no idea what it was. um at all and when I brought it up to him he was like I'll look into that and now that he's Hmm. looked into that he's like okay so in the last month in the last month in RTC my kids gotten off a safety plan we haven't had any violent interactions we've learned to mind our own business which with rad kids is very hard we've learned to mind our own business and not get involved in other people's issues um we're doing great self-care. Um, she, I mean, like she showers every night, she goes to bed, she has sleeping problems, but they're working on that. We're following simple directions. We're playing well with others. Um, it's, we've kind of turned around in the last month and I don't want to have like that hope that things are going to be like, because we've had this before where things have been great. Yep. And then it's just fallen apart. So there's like, it's like the hope for the best, but expect the worst. Like I hope we figured it out and I hope my kid is getting better. Um, but I expect it to all fall apart again. So do you think that these changes, is it because the family therapist is now considering reactive attachment disorder and kind of working with therapy that would help that? I don't necessarily know if that's it because there's a whole bunch of moving parts in a red puzzle that have to kind of like click together. Um, Uh So I don't know if it's so much that, but we also had a therapist that recently came to the RTC that my kid's in right now that had worked with my kid previously at a different RTC. Oh, wow. She came in and she's come in in the last month. She came in and she did fantastic with my kid at the previous RTC. And she came in and my kid recognized her immediately. And she was like, Hey, I know you, like we've worked together. So she specifically requested to be my kid's therapist. And as my kid's personal therapist, however, she, when we were looking at the RTC, when my kid was in RTC previously with this therapist, there had been improvements. In fact, that's the longest stint we've gotten at home since all of this started with, we had a nine month stint at home where we didn't have any behaviors at all nine months off of a six-month RTC stay the longest we've had in eight years where my kid has been home and it was that therapist that she worked with before 
So this is really lucky she's back in your kid's life. Oh, absolutely. Like, I didn't think, like, I didn't, in fact, when my kid told her a name, I was like, I don't know who that is. I mean, we've been through thousands of therapists. I don't remember right. every single one of them. Um, mm-hmm. My kid does still. My kid remembers who of she's Of course. With. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, in the last month, that therapist has come back in. So I think that might be playing a huge role too. There's some familiarity there for my right. kid. There's some, at least a little bit of attachment. And that therapist does understand reactive attachments. In fact, my kid the other day asked me about rat. Really? So I think that maybe that therapist has played quite a role in that. And I'm hoping, fingers crossed, I'm hoping that that therapist is kind of informing the facility that my kid is at about reactive attachment disorder, because that's also something that's going to help some of the other kids that are there. Like I can almost guarantee you, of the like 50 kids that are in that facility, my kid is not the only one with rat. Absolutely. Yeah. I would agree. <laughs> you know, so yeah, if it can help other kids too, you know, yeah. well, it definitely sounds like this is hopeful and because this therapist, whatever she's doing, obviously had a really positive impact on your daughter and for you and her coming home. So, uh, that's really hopeful. I get where you're coming from cautious being cautious, but there is that hope again, which is amazing. So moving forward, you're hoping this therapist makes a difference for your daughter, for you, for the facility. What do you think life is, has got for you ahead? Or do you even think you just take Um, it day by day? (laughs) Day by day is kind of like my norm. Um, but every now and then I do have times where I stop and I'm like, okay, what is, what is the future like? Like, what do I see? And I, in all honesty, I still am kind of in the mindset that my kid is going to spend her entire life in or out of facilities or jails. Like that's just, I know that I don't, I love my kid, but I do not have very high expectations for my kid, right. because I know this story. I lived this story. And that's really common for rad parents. Your expectations change for sure. I mean, and it's not like I had crazy expectations to begin with. I, my expectation was for my kid to go to school and get good grades and find a job and be a functional human. Like that's all I right. wanted. Yes. Um, even from the very beginning, <laughs> I just wanted my kid to be right. a functional human. And that's not something that I got. So to lower your expectations from be a functional human to be human, I guess, at that point, like, I don't, I I don't even expect her to be functional at this point, because I know that that's asking too much. What, what is in store for you? You're going to find, or hopefully you're, you're looking for a new therapist you're in a positive relationship. How are you feeling through all this? And, and just look, looking at you. Honestly, this is the first time that in the last few years, I never really took, I set my dreams and what I wanted to do with my life aside to take care of my kid. I set my own well-being and all of that aside to make sure that my kid was taken care of. And right. In the last few months, I've realized that I am not at a place in my life where I'm happy. I didn't follow my dreams. I didn't do the things that I thought I could do. I didn't like my whole life has been like, it's like a train wreck after it's happened and someone just left a pile of train there. 
and it's time for me to get up and to do stuff for myself being who I want to be and who I feel that I was meant to be, I have to work on that myself. And, and I'm hoping yeah. that me putting myself in a better place is going to help me put her in a better place too. Cause I, I, I've got to stop. That's one thing that like my fiance's helped me realize I've got to stop putting myself second. Yeah. I can't put myself second because yes, my kid and yes, my fiance are important, but if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of them. I can't help it. Yeah. That says it all. That is, that says it all. Is there anything else that you would like to say or share before we go? I do want to touch on a couple different things that I've found that I've really struggled with. Um, even with being accepted into like a rad support community, most of the people that you find whose children have rad and are going through this, they're all adopted, right? They're all, yeah they're all foster, foster kids. And I, I'm not going to say it's easy to give them back to the state, but there's always the option to turn around and be like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I don't have that option. And walking into or going into a rad support group and saying, Hey, this is my biological kid. I then get the judgment and I get the stares and I get the, well, what did you do wrong? Well, what did you do to your kid? Well, why did you know, and I get a lot of that in those support groups and, and kind of like, um, also talking to like therapists that understand rad and it's, it's made it very tough for me to really find some of that support for rad because I, I was already a teen mom. Like I've already got one strike and then I walk in and, and there's these support groups that are supposed to help you. And all of these people that are supposed to be there to support each other, look at me while I'm telling my story. And it's like instant judgment. Like, like I'm a terrible person because my kid has rad and they're my biological kid because you hear rad stories and it's always the biological parents are abusive or the biological parents did blah, 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 or the biological parents are this or that. And so people just assume that that's what happened in your home because you're the biological parent. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really rough for me. And I just want to encourage anyone who's listening to this, like if you have a biological rad child and you face that, don't be afraid to stand up and say something about it. And if you're in these support groups and you have these mindsets of what biological parents are like and, and that biological parents have caused rad and have done this, we're not all like that. I'm here to support and take care of my child in we're in these circles together. We're in this fight together and we need to support each other no matter what. And that includes people who have biological rad children because guys, it's just as hard on us. And I don't have the option to call up my DFS worker and be like, this kid needs respite or like respite's not an option for me. You know, I don't have the option to call up and go, hey, you got to find another home for this kid. I don't have that option. I am stuck in the thick of it dealing with this and I just need some support and I need people to not judge me. I think what you just said is so incredibly powerful and helpful. And thank you so much for that because it's a completely different perspective and you're right. It's not the, the most common and 
just to know that there's somebody out there like you that's doing it and it's real and just sharing that to make other people not feel so alone. And that is huge. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for that. It's been incredible talking to you. You know, I just wish the best for you and your daughter. Thank you. I was happy to be here and I'm happy that I'm happy to get to share this and have some support now. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.